For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we come today to worship in the name of the God who loves us. I'm so grateful you've joined me tonight. My name is Hal Brady, and I trust, as always, that you will be blessed by both the message and the music. Would you hear now, please, the reading of God's Word? It comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I want you to listen to James Weldon Johnson's poem, God's Trombone. He expressed it this way. O, O sinner, where will you stand in the great day when gods are going to rain down fire? O you gambling man, where will you stand? O you whoremongering man, where will you stand? Lies and backsliders, where will you stand in that great day when gods are going to rain down fire? Where will you stand? I'll tell you where we'll stand. We'll stand in the grace of God, who in Christ has forgiven us of our sins and freed us from those sins. So as the Apostle Paul has been speaking of our glorious adoption into the family of God, listen, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. As I said, so Paul has been speaking about our glorious adoption into the family of God. But now he comes back and he's thinking about the troublesome state in our world. And he speaks as a poet. But in speaking as a poet, what he's saying is not any less true than otherwise. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament professor, says that those whom the ancient Israelites called prophets, the equally ancient Greeks called poets. The poet prophet is a voice that shelters reality and evokes new possibility in the listening assembly. In our text, Paul says, 
for the creation waits with eager longing for the redemption of the children of God. Paul sees the whole of creation as one thing. He sees the creation interrelated and interdependent. So the actions of humankind not only affect humankind, but all creation as well. Paul sees us as being guilty for not being the caretakers of God's world that God wants us to be. But there is hope. Where is that hope? The hope is in the Spirit of God who wants to bring His creation to healing and wholeness. The hope is in God who forgives us and who gives us new possibility. The hope is in God who is faithful to His people even as His people are faithful to Him in trying to renew this creation. So I want us to think about this for a little while. First of all, God is the Creator. God is the Creator. Without doubt, the hardest part for me in sermon preparation is getting the introduction. But once I get the introduction, I'm on my way. But sometimes getting that introduction is not so easy. How is this for an introduction? Listen, the writer of Genesis induces, in, introduces the whole drama of God's relationship with God's creation, including human history, this way. The writer declares, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So where does your story begin? Who you are and what you are? For me, it might begin in a town called LaGrange, Georgia, and in a place where there used to be a white house standing on Hill Street that's now non-existent. Or it may have been on Everson Avenue or Vernon Road where we grew up. Or perhaps I could go back to my father who was brought up in a one-room schoolhouse out in the country. Or my mother who was born in a small town in Luthersville. Or if that's not far enough to go back in discerning who we are, I could even talk about the O'Grady's and the O'Brady's who came over from Ireland to America as immigrants. Maybe that's not even far enough. Whenever we start thinking that we go back far enough just dealing with our own family, we know we're only telling half the truth. Because you see, all of us go back beyond the backgrounds and the, all the things that separate us back to our common identity. And if we go back far enough, we'll realize that common identity is in the beginning. God creates the heavens and the earth. And that is very, very true. Now, most religions in the world are based on what's called natural theology. That is, they start with the world and deduce the nature of God from the world's phenomenon. But that is not true of the Hebrew Christian faith. The Hebrews did not know their God by finding him first in nature. They knew God because they had first known him in history. They knew God because God had first found them, and God had found them in history. A rabbi received a letter from a little girl who was in his Hebrew class. And this particular little girl had heard a lecture on the Israelites being freed through the Exodus. And so she wrote the letter, Dear God, our teacher told us about how you delivered the people where the water was. Keep up the good work. My name is Paula, and I'm Jewish. And I'm Jewish. As the Hebrews meditated on God's mighty acts of history, they came to come to stand God's mighty acts in creation. The prophetic faith is rooted in the Exodus. And after that, we began to understand the creation and all of its consequences. Now, perhaps the great preacher 
Joseph Sittler expressed it best when he said, my theology is not derived from nature. It is a theology of the incarnation applied to nature, and that is quite different. What he's saying is that his creation is based on history. The doctrine of creation is based on the doctrine of redemption for him. I'll tell you this, when I think of the God of nature, I know the God of nature because I know the God of the biblical revelation. When I look at the mountains and see the beauty of the mountains and the marvels of the seashore, it's because I've already come to experience God in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe we can understand this in this story. There were some occupants who took off in a four-engine airplane, and they were flying out, and they got lost and crashed into the sea. Well, they didn't lose their lives, but for 15 days, they were hung out on life rafts. They had no food, no water. They were hot. They were thirsty. Everything was going bad. All of them had always thought a lot of creation, but then they didn't think so much of the ocean anymore or nature. Finally, one man, desperate, he began to pray the prayer of the Lord's Prayer. He was the only one who knew it. Nobody else knew it. So at night, they gathered together. They pulled their little rubber rafts together, and they prayed. They didn't say, Oh, God, our Father, or the Lord Jesus Christ. They just said, Oh, man, that was all they knew. But strangely enough, they began to experience something different, something they had not experienced before. Rather than God coming to them in the grandeur of the ocean, God came to them in the Lord's Prayer as the Word of God and spoke to them. So I want to say again, when I look at nature, I don't just see the God of creation. I see the God of biblical revelation, the God that I've experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I'm able to see God's presence in nature and God's presence in other places. Let me ask you a, a serious question. Perhaps our ecological problems in the world today are due to the fact that we don't know nature's true God. And I'm talking about the God of the Hebrews and the God of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, God has a purpose for creation. God has a purpose for creation. As Annie Dillard put it in her meaningful book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, the question from agnosticism is who turned the light on? The question from faith is, why ever did it happen? Beloved, creation has a purpose. There are many ways we could state that purpose. But for me, the purpose of creation is to honor the owner. It's to honor the owner. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And then Paul writes to the Galatians these words, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The purpose of creation can be seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want us to ask specific questions here right now. How can we honor the Creator? First of all, we can seek to bring God pleasure. We read in Genesis, the first chapter, where God experienced great pleasure in creating this world. You keep hearing the words, and God saw that it was good. Now, undoubtedly, the crowning achievement of God's creation is humankind, but God also has a significant investment in creation itself. Max Lucado said he came to understand this through something his father told him. His father told him, he said, don't bring havoc on the garden. He said, you can run out in the yards, you can race in the alleys, 
You can do all these things, he said, but don't ruin the garden. Why did Max Lucado's father have such an investment in the garden? Because his father saw in the garden life. He saw life that was full. He saw the buds exploding. He saw the plants pushing back the soil. He saw turnips and tulips and tomatoes. He saw things that were precious and needed protecting. He saw flowers that were fragile and plants that were precious. And so he said, build a hedge, build a fence, do what is necessary, but do not trample the garden. If we want to honor the owner, the creator, then we should not be trampling the garden. And I'm talking, of course, the garden of creation. And then secondly, we can honor the owner by remembering that the purpose of creation is to be an instrument of redemption. My father was a manager and a hotel owner for 40 years in LaGrange, Georgia. As a young person, I worked for him as a clerk, some on Saturdays and other days. Occasionally, I would bellhop. I thought I was big stuff when I would take that wire and plug it into the phone and say, Colonial, can I help you? I thought I was big stuff. But you know, as a clerk, one of my responsibilities was to take reservations. You know, there's a great deal of expectation that goes with a reservation. The people making that reservation expect that room to be built well. They expect it to be clean and enjoyable. And they expect it to be reserved exclusively for the person. Well, in a theological sense, this creation is the room, the private room, the reserve room of the area of redemption. All of us ought to be involved in the redemptive process, not as owners, but as stewards. And then we can honor the owner by seeking to enable the reign of God, one community. Someone asked me recently, what do you mean when you say, do the will of God? And I simply asked it this way. I said, I think it means to enable the reign of God, one community. Now let me tell you something, beloved. All of us are not biological brothers and sisters, but we're still part of the family. We're still children of the Heavenly Father. Therefore, we're brothers and sisters, period. One of the amazing things about grace is that it makes us graceful. That's what we're supposed to be. This creation has a purpose, and we should be very mindful of that purpose in all that we are about. And then thirdly, God's creation is in turmoil. God's creation is in turmoil. Paul said, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. These words are amazingly contemporary. For instance, what do we do on Sunday mornings? We go down to our churches and we sing for the beauty of the earth. And then we go home after lunch and read in our newspapers about starvation and toxic waste, air and water pollution, depletion of the ozone layer, extinction of species. We read about all of these things. The late William Sloan Coffin said what we need to do is re-wed nature to nature's God. And what that means as far as our natural resources are concerned or this environment is we should not look at them with caution but with reverence, but with reverence. And then we go to our churches on Sunday morning and what are we seeing? I want to be more loving. Lord, I want to be more loving. And then we go home and what do we read about? We read about vandalism and crime and hatred and prejudice and all of those things. It was a horrible day. The father had, had a terrible day at the office. The mother had, had very difficulties some unexpected obligations. The son had broken up with his girl. The daughter had failed a major test. 
It was miserable at the supper table. Finally, the little daughter sat up and shouted, We're not a family. We're not a family. Isn't that what the truth is as we look at this creation today, whether it affects humankind or all the creation itself? What's the matter with us? We're not a family. We're being called to be friends of this creation all over again. Friends of this creation and to be responsible stewards in it. And then that leads to the fourth thing I want to say. The redemption of God is dependent upon the redemption of the children of God. Listen to these words. Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Here Paul is telling God's children to repent of their sins. He's telling God's children that we need again to accept the responsibility to become caretakers of one another and of this planet Earth. Let me ask you something. I've mentioned a few things we can do to help God bring healing and wholeness to this creation. Let me share with you a few other things. These are things we can do to help God bring healing and wholeness to this creation. One, we can commit ourselves to living a simpler lifestyle. Two, we can practice energy conservation and support energy-efficient technology. Three, we can plant trees. Fourth, we can participate in recycling programs. Five, we can assist in educating the public to a more healthy earth. Six, we can practice kindness to our animal friends. Seven, we can affirm the dignity of every human life and work together to solve the problems of violence. Eight, we can take a firm stand against the decline of human values in our homes, our schools, and our community. And nine, we can personally practice forgiveness and community above all the things that separate us and divide us. There was a man who was delivering mail in an airplane, a small airplane, over the Andes for the first time. He got caught up in the air currents and he crashed between the mountains in the snow. He was not hurt too bad, so he got up and he started walking in the snow trying to find some form of civilization. He went against the blizzard. His feet froze. Finally, he just wanted to lay down and rest, even to die. But he knew that his wife would know that if he were alive, he would be walking. So he walked five days and five nights until he was rescued. Finally, he said this. He said, you know, we are saved by the next step and the next step and the next step. Ladies and gentlemen, this planet will be saved by God's people taking one step, then the next step, and then the next step. Beloved, a creation is waiting. Let us pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day and the opportunity of being a part of something so much greater than we are. We're thankful, O oh God, you've called us and given us the opportunity to live lives in this beautiful world. And we pray, O oh God, you'd help us to keep it beautiful. And as a matter of fact, to make it even more beautiful than it ever was or is. Thank you again for this time together, and I ask that you would bless all of those who are watching this program tonight. Be with them and their needs. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I trust that you'll have a good evening and a good rest of the week. Thank you. should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? 
should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion my constant friend is he his eyes on the sparrow Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear, and resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears, oh, step I can see, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy, I sing because I'm free, for his eyes on the spot.